Hello, satirists. This week we watched a movie made by many good-hearted and talented people and George Lucas called Willow, the 1988 masterpiece. Another rousing episode of Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mogul, here with my ever-present co-hosts. Hey, how's it going? It's Jack Olander, a farmer who did not turn into a prophesized warrior. <laughs> and it's Chelsea Hollowell, a magician in training. Right on. So this week we watched a... Ron Howard directed, George Lucas executive produced film called Willow, starring Warwick Davies. So Willow is a movie about an unlikely hero who doesn't want to go on a quest. George Lucas. <laughs> begrudgingly agrees to be the guardian for a baby who turns out to be a prophesized princess who will vanquish the evil queen someday when she gets older. Technically not incorrect, <laughs> according to this film. So that's the long and short of it. There are uh, many zany characters that he meets along the way. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> who usurp all the camera time, it seems, <laughs> and his spot as the headliner. The but, uh, actresses who played the baby basically steal the show. <laughs> and, app and apparently there were five or six different babies who were used throughout the film for different reasons or for different locations. Like when they went to New Zealand, they used a different baby. They had to use an animatronic baby at, at some point because it was too difficult for Warwick Davies to carry the real baby around on this like swaddling backpack after yes. after the the kids grew up a bit oh yeah also for more dangerous scenes they couldn't exactly just kind of throw the babies into chase scenes with horses or expect them to do stunts so. yeah it's not like the old days is it <laughs> okay yeah they are fighting against the evil queen uh queen Bavmorda. Uh, who knows about a prophecy uh, that there will be a baby who will grow up to one day usurp her place of power. Oh, okay. So what you're saying is that technically the prophecy does not come true. <laughs> since we never see this child grow up. Yeah. Uh, that's the tricky thing about prophecies. You know, fate. Hmm. Yeah. Kind of I all in the future and... As we've learned from other movies, the future is as yet unwritten. <laughs> it's true. But we might have a chance to see the prophecy come true, as they have recently announced that they're going to be making a sequel to this film. That's true, although since Queen Bavmorda's already dead... So we suspect. <laughs> good point, good point. Yeah. I mean, it did seem like Zeus was pretty pissed at her at the end. It's true. Which we will describe how we got there. 
right now. So Willow finds this baby and is set on a, a kind of spur-of-the-moment adventure given to him by some old trickster who runs the town he lives in. Yeah, it's not really clear if that wizard has... To what extent his magic is actual magic and to what extent it's stage magic. Cantrips. That's a, what he's got. It's a little bit of both. It's kind of a fine mixture. It's yeah. True. It's I mean, true. I guess the best magic is the kind of magic that is different types of magic all woven together, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Theatrical magic is very important as well throughout the film. But Willow is sent out with a little group of his friends to deliver this baby to humans. The giants who live to the north which are... The Daikini, which are what the humans are called in this world. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, we should probably mention at this point that uh, Willow and his people are Nelwyn, which are basically hobbits or halflings for, for other fantasy worlds. Yes. People who are not as tall as other types of people. Very likable and very cheerful people, it seems like. Like halflings. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But they're trying to deliver this baby to the Daikini. And when they get to the crossroads, they find Mad Mardigan. It's Mad Mardigan. Yes, Mad Mardigan. It's one word. Uh, Trapped in this crow's cage where he's just been left to die for thievery. And somehow he convinces... He stole our hearts. Yes, he did. Basically... He convinces them that they should let him parent this child, and they reluctantly let him out of this cage. And you see, very recently, afterwards, or, you know, very abruptly, he loses the child, and it's returned to Willow, where deus ex machina happens, (laughs) and he's given a quest by some fairy fairy queen. Yes. Yeah. That's like, oh yeah, this is the prophesized child. Check out the tattoo it was born with. Like every other fantasy movie, right? Mm-hmm. That baby had some sweet ink. That's yeah. when we learned that the baby's name, uh, the baby's a princess, and her name is Alora Dannon. Yes. My favorite cool. yogurt. <laughs> yeah. 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 This is when he picks up, as well, two more followers. Who oh are, God. Yes. They're brownies. Yeah, that's right. And they're, uh, they are the blight cast upon the world by George Lucas. No <laughs> doubt. No doubt at all. Jar Jar Binks before he existed. Oh. Yeah, basically. But, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I am surprised that this movie is not known for being the film that led to a massive lawsuit from Robin Williams. Because these guys are stealing his style in every way they possibly can. Ouch. It's true. <laughs> yeah. So Willow reluctantly agrees to look after uh, Alora, although he has no idea how he's going to do it. One of his faults is that he has no faith in himself. That's mm. true. The, the wizard uh, at the beginning kind of tells him that he needs to listen to his own heart. Yes. And Queen Bavmorda's daughter, Sorsha, and her main knight, her champion. Uh, her death knight, I guess, because her, he has a skull mask. Her dark champion is a warrior named Kale. Yeah, you know, watch out for Kale. It's deadly. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sends the two of them out looking for scouring all the lands for a baby that has this birthmark on her arm. Tattoo. So that she can 
abduct it, basically, and do ritual stuff to it. Yeah, at first you'd think that, like, she just wants to, you know, eliminate the child who's going to be her downfall. But then, I guess there's, at the end we see that there's some kind of ritual going on. These are things that CPS would have a major problem with nowadays. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would hope so. I would hope that they would uh, be involved in this. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So, after running back into each other again, Willow and Mad Mardigan team up. In a great chase scene that we'll talk more about later. That is a pretty great chase scene. Yeah. yeah. Listen, there's a, there's a lot of scenes in this movie. This is, you know, you, you can see the uh, iron fist of George Lucas gripping Ron Howard by the throat and making him add just flash cuts all over the place and, and just stitching together tons and ton, tons of quick moments that tell a kind of schizophrenic narrative. Yeah. Just imagine George Lucas in a Dementor's cloak sucking out the soul of the other directors. <laughs> because we might as well just call George Lucas a director in this film. <laughs> that is true. Basically. Yes. But yeah, he didn't really let Ron Howard do his thing. <laughs> or, you know, Ron Howard tried to do the best he could. <laughs> yeah. And he did a great job. It's this, true. Yeah. This is a very fun movie. Yeah. Shout out to Ron This Howard. is one of our favorite movies of all time. We it's great. So They're all winners. <laughs> Med Mardigan accompanies Willow to a lake to find a sorceress that he's supposed to give a wand to. But instead they find a lemur, I believe? It's Some me- sort of tree... Ma- mammal. <laughs> That's true. A uh, tailed mole rat? I'm not sure what this thing was. I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a primate. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. it was a rodent. Looked kind of marsupial, if you ask me. <laughs> but uh, some sort of wingless bat. <laughs> it spoke to them with CGI moving mouth, which was pretty neato. I'm not sure if it was... I'm not sure how they did that. Mouth not effect. sure. Not sure. Maybe it was so a sorceress. They, she, she's in fact the sorceress who was transformed by the evil queen. Razel. Razel. Sort the sorceress Razel, and uh, she teams up with uh, Willow and crew. Uh, but it, as it turns out, after uh, they get back to shore, Mad Mardigan had sold them out, and all of the queens. Horses and all the queen's men came to uh, <laughs> take them all into the evil queen's castle. They got captured, and they escape again. And then they make it to a lowlands area with a ruined castle. Find a convenient cache of weapons. The they second have- act of this thing is basically just a repeated series of close calls with the uh, with the army that's chasing them or. With people who want to capture them. It's true. And uh, they basically have a battle there. They get captured again. Or the infant is captured. Princess uh, Elora. And um, they follow them to the evil queen's castle to try to stop this evil ritual. And right around this point, Mad Mardigan has, uh, has won over the heart of the daughter of the evil queen, Bavmorda. Sorsha. And uh, through combat, they kind of found love for each other. And a, and a disturbing love potion scene. And probably the most problematic part of this movie is 
how Sorsha begins to fall for Mad Mardigan's ensorcelled uh, advances. So, yeah. The, Expect more can, <laughs> Yeah, we'll talk more about the problematic love subplot. <laughs> um, but so they siege the castle. They use some tricks that Willow comes up with from his farming days to get into the castle and trick the soldiers. And uh, he and Sorsha and the sorceress Raziel find their way up to the evil queen's tower where she's doing the ritual. While Mad Mort Mardigan and some of his old... Army pals. Army pals fight with the other soldiers in the castle below. So... We have an epic last battle scene with... It's a wizard's duel. The wizard's duel, which is pretty neat. And Willow uses some of his old uh, tricks from his days as a magician to uh, bamboozle the <laughs> evil queen. I, I did notice that he cast bamboozle, you're right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she basically is flabbergasted, knocks over all of her juice... She is so blown away by his magic trick that it basically causes her to completely destroy her entire magical component set. Yeah. And basically um, uh, results in her downfall. Yep. Yeah, he used the trick to make her think that he made the princess disappear after he ran in to rescue her. Into a realm where no one can harm her. Where no evil can find her. The queen kind of steps back after spilling all of her red juice. and uh, That's important ritual juice. Come on. <laughs> she accidentally steps into the portal to another dimension and kind of evaporates into a red mist. And Well, she also gets struck by lightning, at which point Jack pointed out that she must have pissed off Zeus at some moment, and he finally <laughs> took this opening to blast her. Yeah, like yeah. 80 years ago, she probably called Zeus an asshole, and he's just remembered. And she probably forgot a long time ago, probably moments after the conversation. But, you know, the it second all... she held a stick up into the air and became a <laughs> lightning rod, he was like, huh, gotcha, kid. <laughs> And right as the first shock of electricity hit her, she remembered everything. Oh, no. <laughs> she lives out that one moment over and over again for all eternity in hell now. <laughs> as a red mist. Yes. So they had some happy scenes with everybody in white linen. And we get to see Willow getting back home to his family and a heartwarming reunion between him and his wife, Kaya. Yeah, that's, that's about it for the summary of the movie. Cool. That's a that's a great summary. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the themes that we saw in the movie. Perfect. One of the most obvious ones that we all kind of talked about already was uh, the idea of prophecy or fate intervening in people's lives, having a destiny that you're bound to follow. If memory serves me correctly, this film begins with a prophecy, as all good films do. With narration. Uh, that That's a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> and we never get who comes up with these prophecies either. But they have to, all the movies have to start with a prophecy. It's true. They're, that bit of lore is kind of lacking. Yeah, prophecies just happen, right? People don't come up with them. They just are. 
they, yeah, they they come whole cloth from the aether of the universe, speaking down, handing down this knowledge to all people who every, who know it. Yes, every baby is born with the knowledge that the princess will be born and defeat the evil queen. Everybody just knows it. Yeah, you breathe. It's you go instinctual. To the bathroom, you know the prophecies. <laughs> <laughs> now, something I noticed with the prophecy in this movie is that. It almost felt like the queen, or, or I'm sorry, the evil um, sorceress. Bavmorda? Bad. Bavmorda. Badmorda. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Kind of makes it come true by her own actions, right? Like, we don't really know what would have happened if she had just left well enough alone, but it kind of accelerated her own downfall by trying to deny fate. She created the situation where there would need to be a saving from just by trying to thwart the prophecy. Because she was going after all the women who were having girls in her lands. And if she hadn't worried about the prophecy, she probably wouldn't have been like pushed to do any of that. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And usually in movies, that it tends to be the case. That That's how most directors and writers seem to treat this idea is that it's self-fulfilling mm -hmm. once, never... once people know about it they work to try to thwart it mm -hmm. it's true and there is generally an idea that in i don't know if it's necessarily in this movie but in other movies where they've had this idea of prophecy or fate that the future is kind of unwritten they're kind of dichotomous ideas I think I don't think that fate goes is kind of synchronizes with the idea that the future is unwritten. I think those ideas are at odds, but they often go hand in hand in a lot of films mm. that have this theme. But it kind of seems like whoever wrote this story or the you know, Ron Howard the director if he had a hand in it seems to think that we're all kind of doomed to be our own worst enemy so to speak <laughs> didn't, didn't george lucas write part of this yeah probably i mean he had a major hand in it so i mean he lightsabered the hell out of it nice <laughs> <laughs> and it he uses all these themes in um the star wars movies a lot so there's themes in star wars <laughs> oh boy there are but we'll have to get to that in lightsabers and satire at some point <laughs> lasers and laughs Ooh, nice a big part of kind of understanding your destiny or following your destiny was this idea of having faith faith not fate yeah faith it comes through in the idea that willow needs to have faith in himself yeah, that's kind of one of the big things that jumps out around the very beginning after he uh, tries to take the wizard's test of, of guessing which finger contains the most magic. And he, he goes against his own instinct of picking his own finger. Right. Which sounds kind of gross if you think about it. <laughs> well, he's not picking his nose. No, but you can pick your friend's nose, right? <laughs> well, actually, he picks his friend's finger, which ended up being incorrect. That's true. Yes, he should have picked his own nose. Yes. It's true. He should have. <laughs> Darn. I, I liked what the wizard said to Willow after that. Listen to your own heart. That was His first instinct was the right one. 
Then again, I feel like we might have too many problems in our world today because people listen to their first instincts. So I'm not sure. But I thought it worked well in the film. Yeah. Hmm. When you're working with magic, it seems that culturally speaking, we have an idea that if magic is going to be involved in, you have to listen to your intuition or, or your heart. So to speak. I, I'm still wondering what the level of magic in this film is. I'm very cloudy on whether or not this is mostly practical uh, or like stage magic or whether there actually exists magic in the usual fantasy sense or not. It's very unclear. Well, it seems like it's a low magic setting. So Agreed. that means that Magic is not very prolific. It's rare. I guess there has to be some magic because of the the wand and stuff. The, like the that. wand is a magical artifact. But the I'm still sorcerers fighting the film. That's true. The telekinesis. That's true. Yeah. Yes. I'm still not sure if the stone into a bird trick is prestidigitation or some other type of stage magic or stagecraft could be the case it could be illusion though there was also the army of men turned into pigs yeah. that was and pretty profound that's pretty and huge. then there magic, was the magic. other transformation of the good sorceress yeah uh, of razel razi and Razzle. the troll into the ball sack dragons and the acorn oh, yeah. into concrete that's true or stone that's true yeah yeah, yeah. there's a it's kind of subtle, yeah. Actually, how often bit. big magic appears in it? I mean, mm -hmm. very, very Tolkien-esque, right? Like magic is is right. the purview of a very limited number of people, and the way it's used is is rarely in direct destruction, but in more indirect means or transformations and such. I think that's an apt comparison because, as I was mentioning before, I get the impression that. They may have been wanting to make The Hobbit. Oh, absolutely. And that they couldn't get the rights or something like that, and so they ended up turning it into the movie we got with Willow. And I'm glad in, in that regard. I'm, I am I am happier having uh, getting to live in a world where both Willow and like The Hobbit exist. Another theme that kind of jumped out to me in Willow was this idea of deception, but... What I thought was interesting is it was treated in two different ways throughout the film, either positively or negatively. It wasn't all bad. Um, and a lot of it had to do with magic and tricks. It also had to do with the idea that some things can be used to deceive others, like emotions or poetry. Poetry is the most deceptive art. I got that impression in the scene when... Uh, Mad Mardigan was professing his undying love to Sorsha. Well, he was compelled by the magic of the it's dust true. of broken So hearts. he was deceived and he was kind of deceiving her through, because he was starting to recite poetry to her and express like these very robust emotions for her and she, it kind of gave her red flags at first that he was trying to deceive her. You could argue at that point that he was also deceiving himself. It's true. Also, there's another point. I don't know how far we want to get into this topic, but uh, another point of deception. A lot of it has to do with Mad Mardigan as a character. He's he deceives people a lot. Um, but when he they're in the tavern earlier in the movie, and he's trying to 
get out of the sticky situation with that woman's husband and he's cross-dressing as her cousin. So cross-dressing is kind of treated as a form of deception. Yeah, that's a troubling uh, message for today in a lot of regards. But I guess in this case, it was more of a practical application of this deception. He's trying to get out with his own skin. Not it's not putting, true. not giving any uh, support or, or or attack against you know the behaviors that he was doing that got him into that situation. Just right. more matter of factly, he's trying to save his own skin at that point. And I mean, sadly, it seems like both he and the young lady he was with are trying to protect themselves because she is clearly not in a happy relationship with her uh, potentially abusive spouse, who comes in very angry. First, very uh, disgustingly, grossly, like, flirtatious with Mad Mardigan in drag. Drunken, and then dirty, wet. So wet, somehow. He was, like, leaking from his face. <laughs> yeah, this guy was not an ideal mate, I'll say Yeah, that. no, he was clearly supposed to be displayed as some sort of, you know... Onerous character. Lesser human. <laughs> his name was Lug. Yeah. Oh, was that his name? Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. Wait, is what is what's the significance of that? Isn't that just a normal name? Yes. I believe the implication is that he's kind of like a caveman. Yeah. Kind of like a exactly big lunk. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is a misconception of cavemen, but lug yeah. lunk. <laughs> yes. True. He was not portrayed in a sympathetic manner. He's a grotesque fellow. <laughs> yeah. And so the themes of deception were opposed in different scenes to the themes of faith and things that you could have trust in or ways that you could show loyalty and how having loyalty for one person or another might you might be misleading yourself like Sorsha with her mother um she grew up in those terrible conditions and that's all she knew and she was trying to please her mother any way she could she was a product of her own environment it's really very sad yeah and there's also the, I mean, we've, we've already touched on this, like the idea of faith in oneself. Willow needs to have faith in himself to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish. To go on this major journey at all, but also to perform any type of magic. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a repetition of themes from, from Tolkien in kind of this idealization of the simple life. You know, Willow has no interest... In going out into a life of adventure. He's literally just trying to return a child to its rightful people. And then he plans on coming back. But he's dedicated. He's he's fully committing himself to this. But at the end of the movie, after experiencing magic and adventure and thrills, he is completely content to go back home with his loving family and and continue his peaceful existence in this idyllic uh no-win town that he lives in he's just a farmer you know yeah Yeah. i I mean and that's identical in a lot of ways to the lord of the rings or or frodo and bilbo both who who returned to the shire obviously different circumstances in those stories frodo comes back a little bit more wistful and and forlorn than bilbo does bilbo kind of returns to hobbiton a little bit more contentedly in a lot of ways but then again he's got his ring so that probably explains why he's pretty cool with doing whatever at that point yeah well with that a lot of that has to do with the fact that the hobbit was written as a children's book 
And the Lord of the Rings was for an older audience. Sure. I guess my point is, I am looking forward to potentially seeing more of Willow's life following this quest. It would be interesting if somebody were to reimagine what would happen in Willow's life as another story later on or from the point of view of another character. He's just got that adventuring itch that's never going to be satisfied until he reaches out into brand new adventures. Maybe from the point of view of um, the Princess Alora Dannon after she grows up a bit. That would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, she'll probably never really know much about Willow. Or maybe, oh, no, actually, yeah. Maybe she'll be told legends of the Nelwyn who uh, rescued her and, and brought her back to these lands and re helped her reclaim her rightful throne. And maybe she'll idealize him as this wonderful hero. And when she goes and, and meets him, it'll be like this massive disappointment that he's just this quaint farmer. Or he's been kidnapped already by the Robo Princess, which has been previously mentioned. <laughs> yes. Good callback. Yes, and she has to save him this time. Ooh, Ooh I, I like yeah. it. I'm into it. I but like it. A nice honestly, turn. Honestly, I gotta say, even though um, I almost said Bilbo. <laughs> Close um, enough. Willow. Willow. <laughs> Willow. <laughs> Willow wants to go back to his old life. I don't think now that he's gotten a taste for magic, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, maybe he will get he does get to go back to his family. Maybe in some part of him he's still kind of a farmer. That's how he subsists, but once you kind of dip a toe into the world of magic, you never really see the world the same way again. Well, he and uses magic to make that bird crap on the landlord. So. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, he's going to be keeping everybody in line now. That landlord got sniped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the village elder, who's also a magician, he is probably going to take him under his wing. So, by the t it, in our future timeline that we're making up, by the time that the Princess Alora comes back to visit him, he's probably... At least an apprentice magician in his mm. own right. Ron Howard, give us a call. We're ready to write the script for the follow-up. Yeah, That's as right. far as I can tell, Willow is at the same power level, if not maybe a little stronger than their town wizard. Because he performed all of the same magical feats the town wizard did, and then some. Well, he did so with the help of a powerful magical artifact, which helped him go way beyond his current abilities. So it's kind of like he had access to a form of technology that was beyond his ken, but he was somehow able to tap into something to use it. And he kind of has to dial it back to learn all the rules of magic to fully grasp what he was Oh, doing. but what if he's corrupted by this greater power that he's come to possess and he's going to start yearning for the power of that wand back? Nope. Can't happen. Not will. <laughs> I don't know. That could create a really compelling, complex character arc. That would be really interesting. It could be. But I have too much faith in Willow's nice. strength of heart. I do I do have to admit that my favorite scenario for kind of the follow-up to this is just that Willow's totally having the greatest life of all time with his wife and kids. And it's just like, he's just the happiest, most 
most doting father of all time. And he uses magic in these really mundane ways just to make his farming life easier. And like to make <laughs> and to entertain his children. Oh, yeah, oh I could, he would so do that. Yeah, I could see his kids actually being the epic adventurers who want to go out and learn strong magic. Because they've been hearing his stories of his adventure yeah. days their whole like, yeah. the, for the rest of their years growing he up. He can be mm-hmm. this great guide for the children and, and like kind of like giving them that little flavor, that little taste about this is what it's like when you go out into the Daikini world and here's what you need to know and you know you're gonna you're gonna run into some real charlatans and some and some tricksters and stuff but you know if you keep your head straight here's how you can you can manage and and we're really small so we can sneak around in ways that they'll never predict because they're these big lunk-headed uh Daikini who, who never pay attention <laughs> <laughs> uh, um so one of the settings that I really love, and we talked about this while we were watching the movie, mm. is the Nelwyn Village. Um, so cool. So awesome. It's the best. I they mean, it's actually, Hobbiton, but like, really fun Hobbiton. Yeah, they actually constructed a village that was anatomically correct for all of the um, little people that were actors in the film. And Wasn't it, it like two hundred fifty little yeah, people? Yeah, something like that. They employed around two hundred fifty little people for it. Yeah, who were all characters and uh, other inhabitants of the town. It was so much more lively than yeah. than like say, I mean, Hobbiton from the Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit films, it, who are kind of these staid English stereotypes obviously because that's what Tolkien was writing hobbits to be mm-hmm. but like the the Nelwyn village is very fun and lively and they have like a magic show that that Willow's performing at and they have yeah that's um at the fair that's part of the village uh setting I wanted to talk about too is the fair market that they go to that was a lot of fun mm-hmm. so yeah he was performing with his son yeah yeah, that that scene was really neat. I liked that a lot. And seeing him and 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 Warwick Davies did some like stage magic tricks that were really cool. Yeah, yeah. he actually learned. And he did some real magic too. So I mean, <laughs> him himself did some real magic spell. Right. Pretty cool. Yeah, he said that uh, we watched the uh, making of the movie after we watched the film, and um, uh, Warwick was saying in that that uh, he used to love magic when he was younger. And mind you, he was only 17 when they filmed the movie. Mm-hmm. But he, it, the movie kind of rekindled his love of magic, and he was practicing those tricks. So he actually did the magic tricks that were in the movie. And they were pretty good, too. Yeah. They put them in the film. Yeah. Yeah, they were pretty impressive. Also, the chemistry of the fair was, it, again, it was very lively and very friendly. Yeah. And in interviews with some of the little people, they talked about how special it was to actually be in a town that was constructed for people their size and to be around that many other people that were like themselves. Yeah. And it seemed you like can, a good experience for all of them. Yeah, you can really tell they were enjoying it and yeah. having like a really good time. Yeah. It was nice to watch. It was. Way to go, Ron Howard. Yeah. Shout out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should probably be thanking George Lucas, I mean. Holy... <laughs> <laughs> his infinite wealth. That's right. Yeah. I mean, come on. Fresh off of Star Wars. Yeah. And then the Nelwins actually had some warriors who carried around spears and wore armor all yeah. the time. A lot of they, fighters. A lot yeah. of fighters amongst the Nelwyn. Yeah, pretty yeah. cool. 
the fight scene was actually very lively. Yeah. A lot of great sets in this Yeah. Film. Yeah, let's... Uh, I'd, I'd love to dive right into when Mad Mardigan, when they discover him in the crow's cage. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, that's at the crossroads that they go to. That That was a really interesting setting, too. It's very barren. The crossroads have a lot of supernatural folklore to them. Um, Meeting his destiny at the crossroads. But uh, Something that struck me about the whole movie, too, is that, and we've already touched on this a bit, but it borrows heavily as inspiration um, from the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that they were... I mean, Probably trying to make a Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. A lot of fantasy could be said to borrow from the Lord of the Rings. It's such a iconic work. Sure. But yeah. It just this. There, there's some some major overlaps. Yeah. Like the main character who is a member of a race of smaller people. The set pieces with the fairies who are basically the elves. Right. The swordsman hero who's kind of dirty and different, but who ends up being, like, a guy with a heart of gold. But then it's kind of cyclical, because watching through this movie again, I realized that the Lord of the Rings movies borrow a lot of scenes from Willow. Oh, really? Shots, I mean. Because well, yeah, it was shot in New Zealand, partially. Oh, that's true. So location as well. I was wondering if maybe some of the locations were like some of the same mountains and stuff. That I'm not sure. It just, I'm not sure. The fact that they are in New Zealand, I guess. <laughs> that might be the only justification I have. So I could be way off base on that. Yeah. Yeah, so some of the things that stood out to me, obviously, are um, there's a kind of a shot uh, when Willow and... His fellow travelers are first leaving their village and they get to some foothills beyond. Mm -hmm. And it, the shot is them climbing the foothills with the lowlands and their village behind them. There's a very similar shot in the beginning of um, the first movie of The Lord of the Rings, mm. uh, The Fellowship. And um, there's the scene where they're on the road a little bit later and the soldiers with their hounds are on the road and they have to hide on the side of the road and they're <laughs> hiding there and the soldiers and the dogs are kind of sniffing around for them. It reminded me of the scene in um, the fellowship where they are hiding under the tree from the uh, ring rays. Ring, ring yeah. So there's other like correlations like that. So yeah. Similar cinematography. Peter Jackson, um, borrowed a lot of those shots from Willow, I think. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, they were gorgeous shots, so you know what? If you're gonna borrow, borrow from something that looks really good. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And there's a great chase scene that follows after that with the Queen's guards chasing them down, and they're, it's kind of similar to the ring wraiths. They're all in black. And they're chasing them down on horseback. In a strange fusion of, like, Roman, medieval English, and, your, like, Asian armor, one of them throws a ninja star at the cart. 
Yeah, so, the 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 weapons true. the weapons and armor in this are are actually pretty interesting. They have a an interesting blend of some like eastern style helmets with some western armor. The the swords are a combination of like classical long swords, cleavers and scimitars and then yeah, just out of nowhere there's a shuriken thrown at Mad Mardigan. It's pretty unique. It's it's pretty neat. But that chase scene is brutal. Yeah, yeah I, the stuntmen who fall out of the moving horse-drawn carriage onto their backs in like this in these sickening, crunching drops were seemed pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, it really stood out to me. I've um, never seen someone lose so much blood in my life. <laughs> that's definitely one of the scenes where they must have used the uh, robot baby because uh, I'm pretty sure that Warwick, uh, as Willow, rolled over where the baby was supposed to be lying when he was falling over in the wagon several times. Yeah, I mean, oh. if, if they used a real baby in the horse-drawn carriage chase scene, then I would definitely hope that somebody would have said something. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big no-no. Yeah, generally speaking. Also, just hear me out for the sequel. All right, the princess has grown up to be an adult, and the robo-prop baby who was left behind <laughs> transfers its intelligence into an adult body, and the princess has to defend her throne against the robot who claims to be the prophecy child. I think that would be a pretty good sequel. We better get Ron Howard and George Lucas on the phone right now. Yes, right now. I think Ron Howard can handle this one on his own. No. <laughs> Hopefully. But, uh... If yeah. we're lucky. We'll look forward to that. Yeah, actually, the sorceress <laughs> Razel, or Raziel? Razel. 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 Yeah. Razmatez. <laughs> Razmatez. She is transformed several times throughout the movie as uh, Willow tries to kind of basically experiment on her and practice um, the use of his magic. I imagine that every single time she transforms, it's excruciatingly painful. It sounds like it is. She's like, Willow, please fix it. And then we're just like, oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So at one we point, apologize for your ears, everybody. At one point, she's I a, don't. <laughs> <laughs> she's, gets turned into a crow, then a goat. The goat was my favorite. Yeah, the goat was pretty cute. Um, and then... There's like a final scene where she goes through several different creatures at once, um, and uh, including before, a fucking before, lion. Yeah, like at the major siege later in the movie. <laughs> One of those striped um, lions. <laughs> she first turns into an ostrich, then a peacock, some horrible monster <laughs> that looks kind of like it has an ostrich head. And, um, well, I think that's the middle of the transformation between each form. But it if kind of stopped. looked like something out of the thing. <laughs> then she becomes uh, a, a tiger, and then she finally turns back into human form. We all know she wanted him to stop at the tiger form, too. Probably. That was probably, yeah. you know, top tier. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I don't know if she can cast, though. I mean, she wouldn't be able to fulfill the... It som doesn't seem like she could cast. Yeah. She wouldn't be able to fulfill the somatic components but if she tiger, didn't have fingers. I mean, well, we never saw true. her cast a spell without the wand in the first place. The wand that Willow gives to her. 
The only spell we see her cast without the wand is punch. When she hits the queen in the face repeatedly <laughs> before a, the queen chokes her out. They abandon yeah. their magic and just go to fisticuffs, that's, which that's is a great during scene. The, the, that's during the mage battle scene. We should come back to that. But um, <laughs> Yeah, we haven't scene. even talked about the monster that they named after Cisco and Ebert. Yeah. So this is something we mentioned before where they found that cache of weapons and armor. Yes. Um, in a city filled with people encased in stone? Which oh, was yeah. never explained. I assume the evil queen used dark magic well, to do it, but that's why? That's what the sorceress uh, Razel told them. Oh, it is. Or Razmataz, that's right. Razmataz. <laughs> if if Razmataz says it, then you know it's got to be true. And this is yep. the point where Willow turns her into a goat, too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Excruciatingly. Uh, so... We have a Home Alone moment when, uh, I believe Jackie brought that up before, when Mad Mardigan is setting up all the inside of the ruins to with all these booby traps for uh, Sorsha and the Black Knights uh, that are chasing them. And they use them to hilarious effect of actually murdering a bunch of soldiers. Yes. This is also a point when Mad Mardigan steps in some poop. Which, we, yeah. Go ahead. We, we assume that this was uh, one of George Lucas's most emphasized notes. That <laughs> yeah. somebody has to step in poop at some point. Yeah. It's true. I was actually hoping to touch on all the moments that were zany George Lucas moments. Stepping in poop is one of them. Willow's landlord getting pooped on by a bird in the face was one of them. Basically yeah. everything involving poop. It's true. I watched it in the movie or I'm pulling my money out. <laughs> When they drop that thing, I want a zany slide whistle sound, or I withdraw the funding for the film. <laughs> all right, all right, we'll put in the slide whistle. <laughs> and the Wilhelm scream, too, can't forget. Oh, well, that's, yeah. in, that's in the in the, um, the carriage chase scene. Well, they we use it good, liberally yeah. throughout the film. Fair. It's true. There's at least four times that I counted, but I figured I missed a few others, too. It's true. So, at those ruins... Um, there are those trolls, and that's the poop. Oh, jeez. That was stepped in. Yeah, it's true. Troll poop. Yeah. <laughs> the so worst sad. poop to step in, I'm sure. So they sad. They are basically fecal balls of dirty hair. Uh, oh, They're no. pretty disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty terrifying, the special effects when they're first introduced. There's just a scene of the ruined city, and you see silhouettes of these, like, super mop people full black and they're just like crawling on the walls and under the bridge and stuff on all fours it's pretty bad and it's pretty horrific yeah i thought i thought those are gonna be ring race actually they were like dark shadows creeping it's, down the walls it's so like uncanny valley i actually like had a moment of fear where i was like what the fuck is that yeah, i was like <laughs> what's on the tv <laughs> yeah so it is actually kind of scary, but it's also horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. when you actually see what they are, they're kind of like Planet of the Apes, like ape people. Yeah. And they don't seem that bad, honestly. They it's just a, kind of clobber you. It's a strange and... <laughs> uh, take on trolls, I thought. Yeah, it's a very interesting take on trolls. Willow, in self-defense, right. waves his wand at one of them that's coming at him. And the thing curls up into a ball. It's skin, I'd say it's more of an egg. It's more of an egg shape. And its skin peels back, 
Like it was pulled by in the hide cellar of the Hormel meat factory, right? <laughs> its hide gets just torn asunder. It's like tentacles that come out of its body and tear its own skin off. Or yes, something. and then you just see like the mucusy, slimy egg meat thing. egg. Yeah. And, oh. and what does this thing give birth to? Yeah, two little alien heads sprout out of it and are like, Ree! and then Willow just is like, fuck this, and kicks it off the bridge into a pool of water. <laughs> and, and he's just, he immediately ignores it because they're under siege. But it's pretty much, when you watch this film, that will just be the worst thing you might have ever seen. <laughs> as it's, It'll just haunt your nightmares. I know, I've seen the thing, I've seen a lot of pretty terrible, like, horrible things in horror movies. It was disgusting and it, it, it got me. It's like you marinated... An egg. It's like imagine <laughs> cracking an egg that is full of meat instead of yolk and white, right? <laughs> and it looks a little bit like a brain. Yeah, it it's bad. pretty. And remember, the most important thing to keep in mind is that this character, this monster, is Ebor Sisk, a commentary on Siskel and Ebert, a a crude reference to beloved movie critics. Siskel yeah, and Ebert. Yeah, it was a two-headed. So it gr after it's in the water, it's all bubbling. It grows to be the size of a large dragon with two heads on these really long necks. It's kind of fleshy colored. Oh. And they basically look like they have ball sacks uh, for chins. Yeah. I guess Ron Howard was getting revenge for some bad reviews or something. It's yeah. true. And, and then, uh, it's the assumption that that's where they hold their glands to produce fire. That's the, my guess, at least. These nut sacks on their chins. Yes, of course. As is tradition. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, uh, yeah, they also spray fire, which was a very unique special effect. Used, they used flamethrowers. You gotta give props to a movie for using flamethrowers. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty impressive practical effect. Yeah. This giant monster. It was. And it, um, after a, a large battle scene and many of the traps are triggered, that, that part was pretty satisfying. Yeah. Oh, the traps? They were pretty nice to see. I think they were slightly less brutal than the Conan the Barbarian traps. Yeah. Which just, like, full-on spike impale through your sternum and out the back of your body. I know. But, uh, this and one was kind of, so like... it's wood, so it's going to have splinters. It's just no fun. Yeah, when you pull it out, it, it will, like, <laughs> hurt a little bit. And the splinters will yeah. get you. So, I mean, not to mention the huge hole in your torso. Yeah, well, yeah. No, it feels like a large weight has been lifted. <laughs> yeah, but, uh... Yeah, the traps consisted of, like, bear traps, a little catapult that would throw some loose fruit and sticks, <laughs> which well, knocked a man off a horse and knocked the horse down, too. Can we get an F in the chat for the horses that get knocked down in every fantasy movie? Yeah, pressing F yep. for the horse. To pay um, respects. Yeah, there were also some catapults that he had prepared, and um, some crossbows he had set up to go off after it pressure plate was triggered or something yeah like that. it's true they actually had a pretty good amount of time to set up these traps yeah it's true so this is the point when this we trap. have to talk about the wizard battle yes the wizard battle it was i found it to be kind of slow paced yeah the spells that it's actually kind of funny yeah. like you could play some like you could play yakety sax to it probably <laughs> i mean you can play yakety sax to any battle scene and it's gonna make it it's going to bring it to that next level. Yeah, that's true. It's true. 
the spells and special... To be fair, the special effects they had at the time were more limited than today, but... Really impressive, though. Yeah, yeah. really impressive. But the ones that they were saying in the behind the scenes were like, yes, these spells were very cool, were just kind of like levitations, which seemed a little chunky to mm-hmm. me, like jerky, I should say, where the stops were pretty like abrupt and wiggly. And I thought the lightning that they kind of used special effects for looked much more impressive. But they were showing off the, like, telekinesis, which means, uh, I'm not sure how they did it, but that must have been much more impressive if you're in the industry, I suppose, than the lightning. Maybe. Um, the two old ladies fighting was pretty great. Yes. They brought it. Yeah. Uh, Razzmatazz with their wand. I think they just gave her carte blanche to kind of say whatever sounded like Latin, and... She just went with it. Oh, yeah. You know? Yep. And she's throwing the evil queen around and batting her against the ceiling. It's pretty great. Yeah, that was actually pretty cool. And you know, uh, Peter Jackson took that, too, because I think it's in the second movie we see... Uh, so, the two towers. We see... Um, S- Saruman, Saruman and Gandalf. Saruman doing the same thing to Gandalf. So, so um, maybe we should talk a bit about... Or our rating. That's right. How do we rate this movie in swords? So, uh, Jamie, uh, how many swords would you give this movie? Oh, well, this, this, uh, this was quite a journey, wasn't it? It was thrills and adventures and, and great characters and only a few things that made me go, um, no, I really enjoy this. I think that it's a really good cast. The score is outstanding. The visuals are really cool. Um, so I'd say that I'd probably give this movie a seven and a half swords. That's seven long swords and a short sword. Nice. Uh, Jack, how many swords would you give this movie? I thought the chemistry between all the characters in this film was just phenomenal like i said earlier all of the all of the nelwyn were really enjoying their their time together uh willow's relationship with his family felt really genuine and really nice the chemistry he had with the baby was great uh you know mad martigan and the and the daughter of the queen sorsha sorsha you know, they, they got together in real life, so that chemistry was kind of there, even though the, you know, the flavor surrounding it was problematic. But it's just, the relationships felt pretty, like, I could see it in their face. It felt pretty real. And uh, the adventure was fun. The world seemed interesting, as you've heard throughout the podcast. I've had, I have more questions that I'd like to have answered. And, uh, yeah, I thought it was a... Even the very silly stuff, like the barrel of snow, I found pretty hilarious. <laughs> so I really enjoyed this film. I think I'll give it an eight out of an eight out of ten swords. There you yes. go. <laughs> yes. Um, I really I enjoy this movie. It's one of my childhood favorites. Um, so there's the nostalgia factor. Bad love subplot, problematic uh, though it is. 
I still really enjoy this movie. Uh, I really love the Nelwyn village. It's so great. And the sets and the setting and <coughs> the costumes were all really great. Uh, all looked handmade and really a lot of detail was put into this, to this movie. So I would definitely give it an 8 out of 10 swords. Nice. We have enough swords to start a small army now and lead a revolution against Queen Bavmorda. Ah, uh, right. yes. Maybe we can try to recruit Kale this time so the timeline will be a little brighter than it was. Yeah. Not the darkest timeline. Exactly. So, um, this is the time where we talk about uh, the characters and settings in terms of how they would fit into an RPG. That's right. It's everyone's favorite segment. Can you roleplay it? Or whatever I said last episode it was called. <laughs> yeah. uh, please go back to the other episode real quick. Listen to that clip and come right back. <laughs> yeah. So, Jimmy, you want to start us off? Yeah. Um, I think that we've got some interesting characters to take a look at here and to discuss their merits in uh, how we could create them in a role-playing game. And I think that probably we might as well start with the titular character. How about Willow? What What is Willow going to be in a... If you were going to play Willow in an RPG, what would he be? Mm. Like a Goliath uh, sorcerer, maybe? <laughs> maybe. He actually kind of seems like a dual-class rogue sorcerer to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh... He's, was, he, as Jamie yeah. pointed out at one point, he's good at hiding. He is pretty acrobatic, actually. And he also, I mean, he has an innate magical ability that he displays later, even when he doesn't have the wand. He turns an apple into a dove. A classic magic a, spell. Yeah. It's true. Without any magical implements, so... He has some kind of innate connection to magic. Yeah, so... Go ahead, Jack. Does the bird have a soul that was made from the apple? Only you can decide. It immediately had to poop, which is It did, which was horrific. <laughs> I mean, that's a great part of the magic. That was some monster poop, too. Yeah. It, kind of, it turned into, like, a dove, and this was maybe, like, six or seven tablespoons of poop. <laughs> It was a lot. Just caked that dude's <laughs> I face. I want to know how you know that. <laughs> just It's just a ballpark. I'm imagining... Like, <laughs> like, that, that you could definitely drown in the amount of poop that thing <laughs> produced. Wow. <laughs> like, it was a lot. <laughs> the first shot, they used just a little bit, and George is like, no, we need to, we need to increase that. We need to get at least, you know... Two or three times more of that bird poop. George Lucas says as he's just bobbing a water balloon full of bird poop in his hand. Genuine bird poop, too. <laughs> not prop. Ooh. Don't know how he got it, but, you know, he's rich. I wouldn't ask. <laughs> I love the image of George Lucas. Like, he had to fill that balloon, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no... 
He has people. Come on. <laughs> yeah, okay. I love to think that's just, like, the assumption. Like, oh, he must have hired someone to do it. But I love the idea of him, like, fall, like trying to walk quietly up behind birds with a balloon, <laughs> spreading out the mouth, trying to, like, wait underneath. <laughs> I'm going to make this movie perfect. I'm the producer. My name is on the cover. <laughs> okay, well, going back to the question at hand of, of what Willow's class would be in RPG, I, w- I was going a similar route as you, Chelsea, but I actually thought, I mean, look at He's a, a kind of a crappy stage magician. He's a bullshit artist we see at the end. The guy's a bard, right? I mean... Mm-hmm. He's got all the telltale signs of being a bard. Hmm. Oh, rip. Uh, does he inspire people ever? I, I feel like he inspires himself. <laughs> I yeah, see he that, does. actually. He does. He does inspire. He, he convinces Mad Mardigan to like take on this cause. Like Mad Mardigan is this guy who's like this shamed swordsman who kind of is rudderless and, and like looking for something in life, and he and seems Willow, like he's lost his honor. He is without rudder, mm-hmm. yeah, or honor. <laughs> and then Willow shows up with his baby. Is like, come on, man. And then like, look at how how much Mad Mardigan ends up caring for little uh, Alora. Like he he's really been convinced. I feel like he's been truly inspired by Willow's actions. Oh. It's true. The scene where Eric uh, tell, informs Willow that Mardigan was a thief. And that's why he was in that cage. Mardigan seems to kind of really... That kind of takes him back a little bit. And I think that's kind of when he switches from being a little bit more of a scumbag to being a bit more heroic. Yeah. Yeah, good character development. Mm -hmm. Also, Willow, yeah, he doubted himself pretty much throughout the whole film. He was a farmer who was in debts to this very mean man. He was trying to learn magic, but no one really took his spellcraft seriously. Yeah. And then throughout the film, you know, he, he actually uses those skills to help people. Just more interesting character development. I could see him being a bard. I could see it. Both bards and sorcerers are known for having inherent magical ability. Yeah. At first, because of the stealth, and, you know, he, he's very fast. Uh, you know, he's quick. But uh, I was thinking potentially some sort of arcane trickster, but they I suppose they actually have to focus on learning spells. And he learns stage magic really more than he actually learns spells. Yeah, that's true. So He's more of a performer. It's true. Now, hear me out, all right? <laughs> I'm feeling probably at least one level in Rogue. Or, actually, he could get that inherent sneakiness from being, and it's not racism, because in RPGs, hobbits and halflings have a buff to stealth, so they're they're naturally sneaky. Perhaps that isn't part of his class. Maybe he is just a level one sorcerer or bard that uses cantrips. Speaking in terms of the, you know, RPG terminology... And um, the fact that he would be probably a halfling. I could see the stealthiness being part of a racial trait. Mm-hmm. Makes sense so to me. I could see, like, a, a charlatan sorcerer. That would be kind of fun to play. Or I could see him as a bard. I think there's merit in both. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, he could be a rogue with uh, 
one of those feats that gives you a couple magic spells. But come on, whoever does that? <laughs> My goodness, a character that is unambiguously not a fighter. That's that's got to be something. Well, <laughs> now that brings us to the rest of the movie, doesn't it? Because uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> This is, this is my fear that uh, every week it's going to be fighter, fighter, fighter all over the place. Um, a lot of the other characters in this movie that are adventuring with Willow, which is mostly Sorsha and Mad Marty and definitely have a strong fighter vibe to them, now don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. I was thinking, like, could Mad Mardigan be a barbarian? He has Mad in his name. He wears heavy armor. He's a trained soldier who went through the process of learning how to wear armor and fight with weapons. He doesn't rage. He's just unruly. And so... The barbarian who refuses to rage. I kind of think he might be a rogue, actually, because even though he's well-known as a swordsman, he's really good at kind of infiltrating places or doing things in disguise... He definitely passes his disguise bluff check. Mm-hmm. When, oh, no. When, oh, yeah. Oh, no. When he's having that affair. Yeah. You're right. I forgot. That's and so silly. He, he sets traps in those ruins. Compelling? Compelling. Yeah. And he seems to be really dexterous. That's true. He definitely does he some ro- some rolls and some acrobatic yeah. maneuvers and some sword flipping. Traps that throw loose rubbish at your enemies definitely weren't taught in his soldier classes. No. It's true. I'll buy it. He kind of is a thief at times. He is a thief. Mm -hmm. He's accused of being a thief. Mm -hmm. Well, but that's just because he stole our hearts. Oh. He must be a bard, too. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, I'm thinking Rogue for Mad Mardigan, actually. A bard that doesn't know he can cast. That's pretty funny. Yeah, a uh, rogue. I could actually see that. He wears heavy armor, though. But maybe he's just does been he? taught how to do that. Yeah, he does. Hmm. Remember in the ruins? He picks up that golden armor. So practical, so light. Maybe that's when he just dipped into a fighter level. Like, right at that oh, point. Yeah. Maybe he leveled up right before that fight. I could see him as yeah. a rogue fighter. Yeah. Makes sense. They did get in a lot of combat, so he probably had an opportunity to level. I know Willow did. Yeah. Willow leveled. Definitely. Ah, yeah, that's for sure. At least a few times. So, I think that Sorsha is uh, definitely a fighter. Yeah, she's got that that fighting spirit that that only fighters can have. She's bold and brave. She's pretty unflappable in combat, except, uh, you know, with the stuff with the relationship. Except when she was flapped. Yes. By Mad Mardigan's advances. Yes. She was shaken by that. Um, she's kind of a warlord too, though. So, um, oh yeah, she is commanding an army. Mm-hmm. No, I can't remember the fifth edition D and D version of the warlord. The battlemaster fighter. Battlemaster. I think she'd be a battlemaster fighter. Get, issuing commands through her troops on the battlefield. Yeah, I should know. I played a character for two years that was a battlemaster fighter. <laughs> Makes sense. This was escaping me right now. So. Nice. <laughs> yep. I think that would be her. A lot of, a lot of yeah. human fighters in this party. Yes. Um, How about the the character that um, everyone really wants to know the the D and D or RPG class for? Uh, Alora the baby. Oh, thank God. No, I'm kidding. Of course, I mean, uh, Razel 
or razzmatazz. Oh, thank God. I was just praying you didn't ask about the brownies classes. Well, I'm pretty sure they're they're brownies. I mean, they're usually those are usually statted out in, in yeah. whatever book of monsters manual filled with monsters. Yeah, it's true. It's true. One hit point. <laughs> but uh, razzmatazz. I'm not sure what the magic system of this world uh, is based on. It's pretty all over the map, and it seems like a like it seems like even wizards are all trained in some amount of stage magic in this world. True. Yeah, it's true. She does tell Willow at some point to, like, put his will into the words, which makes me think he might be a wisdom caster, because he has to believe in himself to cast the spells. It's true. Right? She it's says that multiple times. Yes. So maybe it would be, like, a Pathfinder sorcerer. What do you think? Well, no. Do they use wisdom in Pathfinder? <laughs> or is that charisma? Uh, I mean, if we want to really get into the weeds... Yeah, I mean, there's a sorcerer in Pathfinder who casts with wisdom, but that's, that's pretty uh, addition specific. Yeah, it is. Well, we've mentioned 5e already, so. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think he's he probably would cast with willpower. They mentioned it. I assume that the sorceress does as well. Is she a sorceress? I mean, that's what we're trying Rise to figure out. Is she, is she a sorceress? Well, they call her a sorceress in the world. A wizard? A warlock? A warlock? Warlock of what? No, 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 no. The Queen Bev Morta is definitely a warlock. A warlock of the red liquid. <laughs> That's right. She is, she is packed bound to the red liquid that she spills. She could be an undead packed warlock because she's dressed like a mummy and tries to wrap the baby up like a mummy as well. That's a Compelling. good point. And she looks like she's getting really sallow as she's doing the really intense ritual That's true. Casting. She ages like 20 or 30 years. Yeah. So she could be um, like an undead caster. And she needs all that red water, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Blood magic. Yeah. yeah. I could see it. I could see it. We just don't know who her patron is. Uh, Warlock of the Prophecy? <laughs> prophecy Pact? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if you're fated to have power, like... It could yeah. be like the unknown power of the outer realms or something like that because she tries to open a portal to another dimension to send um, Alora's soul into. It's true. And she ends up getting sucked into it. Mm -hmm. Anyway we slice it, that's some Warlock shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like so. it. I like it. So I think Roz, Rozelle Rasmataz is uh, either a sorcerer or a wizard. Perhaps a hybrid. Oh. Because she does seem to have some innate ability. She knows how she has the knowledge base of spells that she's learned to, though. And she is adept with certain artifacts. Like the wand. It's um, a bold, multi-classing choice. Sorcerers can use wands, too, right? Yeah, arcane focus. Yeah. Still, it seems to be a very powerful artifact that requires you to have some knowledge that you've gained and, and things that you've learned about magic. It uses an innate ability and something that you've learned. It's a kind of a special artifact. Yeah. So I think she's kind of a hybrid. Mm, I see it. I like it. Yeah. I accept it. Yeah. Nice. Well, there's, there's the significant characters, I would say, who are not um, the NPCs. brownies. NPCs. <laughs> yes. 
NPCs. <laughs> Good boy. Yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> I think this draws us to the close of yet another rousing episode of Swords and Satire. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and we hope that if you have enjoyed the show, which is what we hope that you have done, that you'll go ahead and give us a five-star or ten-sword review on whatever application you're listening to us on. Smash like, subscribe, hit the bell. <laughs> Share with a friend. Have that friend share it with a friend. Yeah, if you share it with ten friends, and then they share it each with ten friends, well, um, we can't promise anything, but we will definitely appreciate you. If we see you in person and you tell us you did that, we'll give you a high five. Maybe. Unless your hands are dirty. Then maybe <laughs> I'll take a pass. But also maybe don't, uh, you know. I won't promise anything. If, if we're eating or something, and you actually know what we look like, maybe don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, hail Crom! Hail Crom! <laughs>